take first watch. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of the First Watch Podcast, a show where we unpack what's captivating about film. I started this project just over a year ago as an outlet for film writing and took a long hiatus to determine what exactly I felt the show should be. On this episode, I'll be speaking with my friend Cole about Pablo Lorraine's 2016 biopic, Jackie. He's the first of several guests who will be joining me to discuss our favorite movies, filmmakers, new releases, and plenty more. Be sure to be on the lookout for two new upcoming Spielberg episodes. The first where we're going to cover our favorite Spielberg films, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, AI, and plenty more. And the second is for his new release, West Side Story. Without further ado, here's Cole on Jackie. All right, I'm Zach, and I'm here with Cole, and we're here to discuss Pablo Lorraine's Jackie. Cole, how are you? Good. Great to be here, making my uh, podcast debut. I've really, to be honest, ever since we started hanging out, I've always wanted to get together with you and talk about Jackie because it's a movie that I really enjoy, but prior to kind of being in Twitter and Letterboxd circles, almost had no hype in my life. No one that I knew really liked it. You were one of the first people I ever met that shared a level of enthusiasm. I remember seeing it originally when it came out at the Landmark in Chicago, that was November 2016, and I immediately fell in love with the movie. And I had known a couple of other people who were obsessed with it as well, but it did take some time to kind of build a sort of cultural ground, so to speak, to mm-hmm. the point where now everybody remembers it and is in love with Spencer, the new film from Pablo Lorraine, that also focuses say. on a historical figure bound by tragedy. I think that it's primed the way that people now view Lorraine's filmography, which is interesting because he's got a very eclectic and unique set of films, but he's now become, because of Jackie and Spencer both having the acclaim that they have, kind of known for, for doing this, where people are already projecting what might be the third woman that he's going to do this trilogy about, or the third character is not necessarily a woman, but it speaks to the power of both of these films, which we'll talk about. So you mentioned seeing this in a theater. Have you seen anything lately before we get into the discussion of Jackie? Anything out in LA? Have you seen Lippers Pizza yet, maybe? Anything like I that? still need to go over to Westwood to go see that. <laughs> I've just been very lazy about it. You know, that's the awful thing is that there can be so much stuff here. But when it runs for so long, it's just like, okay, I'll go see it later. I'll go see it later. I'll, There's I'll so go much- then. They cram so many screenings here into Q4. Of every year, it seems like- It's, it's exhausting. Well, and not to bemoan anything, but there's a lot of repertory screenings that are happening in December that I've now purchased tickets for. And I keep thinking, wow, that's really going to limit the amount of time that I have to go see The Matrix or go see whatever new releases there are. Right. And it just, it feels like there's so much competition. So what have yeah. you seen lately? So lately what I've seen, it's not coming out in New York or LA until Christmas Eve. And for the rest of you guys across the country and around the world, probably not until next year. But recently I did go see at an AFI festival screening, the new film from Pedro Almodovar, Parallel Mothers, starring Penelope Cruz and a couple of other actors, both new and old and familiar to his filmography. The story focuses on two different mothers, one played by Penelope Cruz, the other is a teenager. I can't remember the actress's name, but she's amazing in it. And it's about these two women who meet at the hospital when they're about to give birth. And it traces over time how their friendship grows and changes from the fact that they are both 
new mothers and they're still adapting and adjusting to motherhood. And it's also intercut with Penelope Cruz's character and her relationship with this archaeologist. Her great-grandfather was killed in the Spanish Civil War. He was kidnapped by Franco's soldiers and then buried in a mass grave. And this has become a major political issue in Spain. There's thousands of mass graves all over the country and the descendants of the survivors of the Civil War want these graves exhumed and dug up so that they can bury their dead properly. And then there's a whole other subsection of Spain that's like, leave it alone. We don't care about it, whatever. Let the rest, the past is the past. So the film intersects between future and motherhood and in these children and the past and the dead and the people that we've lost. And it interconnects in a very beautiful and heartbreaking way. It's incredible to me that Amadouvar, he started making films in the 80s. So we're in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. We're now in decade five and coming off Pain and Glory, which is a movie that I adored. I mean, so it's really, good. it's so invigorating that there are certain creatives out there that, that are productive and visionary that deep into their careers. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. I think that comes out here in Dallas in January. Yeah, it'll probably be January for most of the U.S. So speaking on Dallas, the, the most recent stuff that I've gotten to see real quickly. I, so I went and saw, you'll, you'll love this. I went and saw a Verhoeven double feature of Benedetta. Yes. Uh, you're so lucky. Uh, the newest film from Paul Verhoeven, which is that there were a great note on that is that there were protesters outside the theater. I went back to back nights to the theater and there's just protesters outside. You know, <laughs> this movie has bad representation <laughs> of our blessed Virgin Mary, which which is cool. I actually spoke to an editor of the podcast that that theater where I saw it. Yeah, because they were talking about how it speaks to the vitality of the theatrical experience to have protesters because you can't protest yeah. Netflix. You can't protest. Oh, no what I watch on my computer or on my television on my couch. But yeah. when we convene physically, we can send messages with our presence and our action. And that's a yeah. powerful thing. I could go protest Netflix. I could just take a ride down Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, I live in Hollywood. So. Yes. And so the next film, we'll talk a little bit about Hollywood here in a second. The next <laughs> film that I saw, the night that I saw Benedetta, the newest Fairhoven, we also got to see Starship Troopers. Which was, it, I've never seen it in a theater, obviously. I mean, I've seen them these countless times. So lucky. But it, I mean, it's a riot with a crowd. It's just one of the most <laughs> grimly ironic and funny movies you'll ever see. So that really enhances it. I think they're also doing Total Recall while they're showing Benedetta there. Oh, sweet. And then last night, this is, this is a big brag. Speaking of Hollywood, so right now it is the 20th anniversary of Mulholland Drive and Rebecca Del Rio, who is in that movie and is a vocalist during the Club Silencio scene, is doing a No I Banda tour. She's going all around the country, theater yeah. to theater, and they're showing the new 4K Janus uh, Criterion scan of Mulholland Drive. And she's been performing not only the Roy Orbison cover from the film, but a number of other songs. So I got to go see Mulholland Drive and see Rebecca Del Rio perform live last night, which is just like... Uh, I hate you. <laughs> I've I've been really blessed with theatrical experiences all year long, but that has really been the peak of it. Yeah. To be, that's a little recency bias, but I mean, it's just. I mean, I can wow. imagine how it must have been. I I feel like if I were in your because like if if that happened, you know, if you got to go see Mulholland Drive and then you like walked out and we're in Hollywood, it's just like that would be literally the only cherry on top that was missing was that I was in Dallas when I saw it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what's what's cool about that is so the theater that these events are screened through is the Texas Theater, which is a yeah. local joint. It's downtown. It's on West Jefferson Boulevard, just a short ways away from Dealey Plaza. And one of the reasons that it's such a great theater is because it's a historical landmark for the city. If you have the Criterion Channel, you can actually go see a little bit about the 
Texas Theater because they have a segment on there which talks about the history. Oh, really? Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And the reason is because it's part of a series of it's theaters owned by a company called Aviation Cinemas, which mm-hmm. does like a lot of restoration work for historical yeah. landmarks. And the yeah. historical significance of this theater is that on one fateful day, a young man by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald walked in through the front door, threw down a dime and went to see a movie called War is Hell. And if you understand your history of, of Dallas, Texas, and America, you, you know that Lee Harvey Oswald was the alleged likely suspect, probable assassin of the husband of Jackie Kennedy. Kennedy. Jackie, for all intents and purposes, really big piece of Dallas cinema. And I always kind of consider that when I watch this film, naturally, there's like one connection, for instance, Texas theater, like you can go buy a shirt. And one of the shirts you can buy is of the Zapruder eight millimeter camera, which this My film <laughs> recreates the scenes that were captured on that day in history. One thing that yeah. I got to see at the Texas theater in 2019 was on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, we saw the Apollo 11 dock, which of course has John F. Kennedy's face and his voice talking about, we're going to go to the moon by the end of this decade. And you just feel yeah. the power of that history, which I think is really so much of what Jackie is about. It's all about myth making. And the way that memory and eventually legend and myth and history can be embedded into objects. One such object, for instance, might be the pillbox hat. One of my favorite shots in this film, you have Natalie Portman as Jackie sitting in front of a trifold mirror in her pink thing. And you're getting this visual information that she's on a plane. And I've always loved that she's on a plane, but she just seems so graceful and steady. But you see her brandish the pillbox and she kind of pulls it from off camera and just right on her head. And just it plays with those, those bits of iconography so that in your mind you go, oh, I know what's about to happen now. And it plays with your expectations of history and the way that your memory is triggered by the outfits that the two Kennedy children wear at the funeral, or it's triggered by the image of Lyndon B. Johnson on Air Force One swearing himself in. And that's a really powerful part of this film. To me, what Jackie is significant for among other things, which we'll, which we'll break into, is that it presents her as a character that understands the value of myth and the limitation of myth, right? She understands how to wield it as a weapon and also that really we're all just people, that we're needy, that we have our own kind of emotional wants and needs and values and that we're all deeply human and that legends are people and that history is one time was a person living. The thing with the pillbox that the pink Chanel inspired outfit, Jackie was a fashion icon for a reason. You see the thought process in her mind after the assassination, when she's on the airplane cleaning herself up, she refuses to go out the back and just hide. She wants to go down the front steps, still in the pink outfit, blood all over her because she wants people to see what they did. And that's the beginning of setting JFK's legacy. There's a question, I think, at the center of the film, is that pride, particularly when you're talking about going out the front of the plane later when there's a funeral procession, she wants to not only have a big funeral march in D.C. at a time when two very high profile people have just been assassinated. So it's a big security concern, naturally. But not only does she want to have the procession, she wants to walk in the procession, Mm -hmm. exposed and have her kids and the kids are being photographed. And there's a question of, you know, is that prideful? And if it is prideful, is that okay? Is it good? Is it bad? I mean, is it pride or and is it despair? Because there's a conversation later on in the film which she has with the priest towards the very end. Uh, The priest is the only character in this film who is not based on a real person. He is a conglomeration of various priests that the Kennedys had talked to over the years. She tells him she wanted to die. And she wanted that big procession, hoping that someone would take her out. 
She was hoping that someone would be positioned up in a building and snipe her down like her husband because she was hurting so much. It's a really jarring psychological portrait of not grief. I mean, of course, there is much grief in the movie, but the emotion that I would describe is like shock. It shocks so bad that it seemingly fragments the order of events in the story. It kind of follows a nonlinear structure. There's a lot of questions that are posed because the film is framed as an interview. You saw it very recently. Do you happen to remember if the Billy Crudup character says how long it's been since the assassination? It's always a, um, it's a short period of time. It's like a week or two weeks or something. Yeah, I think it's like one week. She's already back in Massachusetts at Hyannisport. A side note, I'm from Boston. So the Kennedy myth has been drilled into my head ever since I was a toddler. We've got a person from Boston, Massachusetts. We've got a person from Dallas, Texas. We are on the historical wavelength of this particular feature. So really quickly on the interview part of it. So, So again, it's a really short period of time after the assassination. So to me, a lot of the emotion of the film is getting to the point where the shock wears off enough and the cameras turn off and she can then experience sadness and grief. A lot of it is jarring, violent, seizing moments. And all the while, it's framed by a conversation where she is trying to maintain level. She's being interviewed by a journalist played by Billy Crudup, one of the more underrated performances in this film. I think a lot it's of very people, good in it. I think a lot of people recognize how great Portman is. Obviously, she had Oscar nomination. You mentioned the priest who's played by John Hurt, who I see a lot of praise for because yeah. those scenes are so strongly written naturally. I think that was actually his last role. Yeah, uh, that's it dawned on me it was just sort of like watching it this this last time I just watched this last week and it, she's talking about wanting to die and he's talking about just kind of embracing the days as they come and hearing that from the elderly John Hurt just has like real poignancy that's kind of non-textual but nonetheless is part of the power of the film yeah. in those crude scenes to me what's interesting about them is that a lot of the questions scan like double speak this is an underrated quality in my opinion of the Spencer script as well where there are lines of dialogue that have a meaning, but they also kind of have this subtextual meaning of like, to me, the reason that I've always loved Jack, the reason that I always wanted to talk to you about Jack is like, I find the Hollywood prestige Oscar bait biopic thing to be about as boring as everybody else does. But it's the worst film, film genre. It, it, because they're not structured to be interesting stories always because trying to capture, not every movie can be Malcolm X. Not every movie can be this whole claw beginning to end Spike Lee masterpiece with a powerhouse performance in the middle of it. It's just not like that. But what yeah. this film does, one, is it captivatingly renders Jackie's psychological state. And two, it throws you this crude up character whose function to me is to interrogate the biopic as a form, to ask the ghost of Jackie Kennedy, if you will, these sort of unanswerable questions and watch her be elusive. I I love the the particular moment where she is smoking a cigarette and says, I do not smoke because it plays into her character as somebody that, again, understands the power of myth, understands the power of crafting an image. But it also speaks to the fact that it's like, it's documented that she didn't smoke, but I'm telling you here that she did and lied about it. But it's loose it doesn't necessarily imply that this is who she was it implies that you can never really know who she was there's even these moments where she will give this entire speech to billy crudup's character and then be like i'm not letting you put that in the interview it's not in there which is lorraine effectively telling you this is me kind of filling in the blanks a little bit for you here it it reminds me a lot of a book that i read in high school and really cherish it's called the devil in the white city i I won't get into the whole plot of it but it's it's effectively like one of the most well-researched essays and then it has these little balances of kind of narrative and psychological fiction that are based in fact but ultimately a little bit more expressive creative license 
I think if you're familiar in any way with either of our perspectives, which you may not be, uh, we'll make we'll, we'll make you familiar here. And this is art, you know. <laughs> the point of this is to be a portrait of psychology and an inspection of history and the roles that women hold, especially at the highest echelons of society, yeah. and the pressure. <laughs> that entails and what that makes a person especially when they go through something as jagged as this yeah i mean we don't want movies to be wikipedia articles they're boring that's that's the deadliest sin you can commit i think the imitation game and the darkest hour really make that point clear where they just sort of play these things into events whereas i I love the fragmented non-linear nature of this where it sort of it feels like experiencing the emotion of this event And then it kind of collides into history because it has to, because we had to do this, because somebody had to take leadership. Somebody had to get the country moving again. I mean, that even comes up when Crudup's character mentions that Jackie was like a mother to everybody guiding America through the grief process. The only time you really see her crack is when she's wiping off her husband's blood. That's one of the more, I love all the shots of her with the blood on the pink Chanel. And then you see it on the the black stocking in that scene where she's getting undressed and it kind of like sticks to her leg. Yeah, and and she starts to crack. Again, it's like the shock wore off. The shock wore off and she finally got into a room after a hallway, after a chamber, after the front door, after the courtyard, you know, like interior into this like, okay, for sure, no one is watching me. I can cry a little bit. <laughs> the deepest, darkest corner of the White House. One thing that this movie kind of it plays with the historical Jackie Kennedy tour of the White House. And I love the way that it makes this connection between like the way that you perceive Capitol buildings and the White House in terms of their interior decoration and what you expect to see in government buildings like that. It's basically making the case to you that Jackie Kennedy is a huge reason why these rooms have the aesthetic that they have. Which yeah may feel superficial, but in the context of this film, feels very significant. She goes on the tour of the White House with, I believe the TV channel was CBS, and they stop in the Lincoln bedroom and she talks about Abraham Lincoln. These presidents who were assassinated keep popping up. There's one moment where she starts to compare herself to Mary Todd Lincoln because she's afraid of being kicked out of the White House, of having to go back home and not being able to take care of her family. And then the most crucial bit, she's in the back of the hearse with Bobby Kennedy and she asks the hearse driver, do you know who William McKinley is? Do you know who, who was the other one who got killed? Uh, See, that's the point. Garfield. Like, that's the point. We don't remember these two presidents who were assassinated. Because the groundwork was not laid to remember their legacy. But of course, they remember who Lincoln is. Bobby is one of the more tricky characters in this script to me because I think that it does a good job, but maybe not an excellent job of representing what all he was about necessarily. And I think that yeah. that's a function of it focusing more readily on Jackie. Jackie never really knows what anybody else is thinking. Everybody else kind of seems like maybe they're nice, maybe they're a threat. I don't know. Yeah. Because she's kind of playing chess with everybody at all times, including members it's up of in her the air. family. And Bobby's one of the few people that shows her empathy at the beginning, but by the time you're in that hearse scene, they're separated by the casket. And he's thinking about business. She's thinking about legacy. I love the conversation that they have where he is kind of like breaking down and just like, we could have done so much more. And he feels so disappointed. He feels like, yeah, we're not going to be remembered because we didn't do enough, you know? And that, that ties into everything that she's asking during that car ride. Yeah. Quickly, quickly on the CBS tour, this film shot by Matthew Libatik. Libetique's really known for his Aronofsky collaborations. Uh, Aronofsky, a bunch of psychological horror, psychological thriller. 
which yeah. shows its head, you know, when she's going into the deep recesses of the White House, we're like, we're in the overlook. She's freaking out. Yeah, um, she's wandering the halls with a drink and some pills. <laughs> and so you get like a lot of these like really frantic close-ups and things. It's not, Spencer kind of actually takes this to the next logical step and is like even more intensely cloistered. But those things are happening here as well. In the conversation that she has with the priest, there's that one really now I think kind of iconic shot of Jackie on the beach at sunset with her kids. Yeah, and she turns and it just kind of shines through her hair. It's just really beautifully shot. I love that moment. It's kind of gorgeous. I love the shots of her wandering through the cemetery, just shrouded in fog. Yes. You know, uh, yeah, and she she's kind of marching and no one really knows where she's going. She has an intention that no one else can see yet because at that point she's like, we can't just bury him anywhere. President. Yeah, no, she said, fuck Brookline. <laughs> Brookline is no place to bury a president. Nice town, no place uh, to bury a president. Wonder, that's a wonderful dialogue. In terms of cinematography, one, <laughs> one little thing during the CBS, when you're actually, you get a flashback of them filming it and you see like the big cameras on the dollies. I always love that little yeah. historical period filmmaking stuff. We're doing these dolly shots with like a, you know, it looks like the so psycho good. or twilight zone pre, you know? Yeah. It reminds me a lot of Mad Men, a show that I love. Seasons mm-hmm. two and three are heavily defined by like the Kennedy election, the Kennedy assassination, blah, blah, blah. But it's got that same level of period detailing down to costumes and vehicles. Like, of course, most period movies are detailed, but this looks in part due to the Liebetique cinematography like you are looking into the 1960s. Few movies have a look that complement its era so well. The problem with a lot of historical biopics is that the look doesn't always feel lived in. In the world of Jackie, it feels lived in. Which is critical when you're talking about the woman redecorating the White House and the Lincoln Room. You know, you can't you can't get the details of these costumes and these sets anything less than perfect and have us buy in. There's a Michael Levi score in this film, which is so good. I want to say it's probably in my top 10 to 15 film scores of the 2010s. That's pretty lofty. I would have to think about it. What's whack is that it's like my second favorite Michael Levi score because the other <laughs> skin one is like from an alien planet. This one's beautiful and haunting and i think that it really avoids being maudlin it's intense but it's not overbearing it's sentimental without being cloying i mean because it starts right away you know the film starts black screen and you hear the gentle shriek of those violins that just kicks you right into this is history this is tragedy how do you feel about the recreations of the Zapruder footage? Basically, during the entire interview sequence, Jackie's very, and, and not just the interview, but really in, in every interaction that she has, she's like, yeah. I don't remember as, it, or she'll kind of bully the person asking her about the assassination away from yeah. doing it. And then eventually she's like, I remember everything. Yeah. You're in the car. You see it's, the Secret Service agents hanging off the back of it. It's extremely well done. And, you know, it speaks to her psychology as a character that she doesn't want to remember it until this moment. And, you know, who can blame her? Who wants to, you know, relive through that? But then it gets to that moment where you clearly see him get shot in the head. And that's the most jarring moment of the entire film. Prior to this scene, she has a line about his face and how beautiful and like peaceful he looked. He would make a face just before he would laugh at a joke or something like that. And it was like that. And when you see it, uh, I love the actor that they got to play him. He's like very judiciously sparingly used throughout the film. But when you see his face roll up, it's a really haunting moment. Unlike the CBS footage, these scenes are not shot on eight millimeter like the Zapruder film, but the details of them are fucking 
incredibly precise, such that if you're familiar at all with the Zapruder footage, you're like, yep, that's what happened. I mean, whenever Jack appears on screen, and it's like you said, not for long, it does have this incredibly haunting effect. Almost uncanny, right? The way, you know, you see actors playing Nixon and it kind of looks uncanny, but here it's sort of part of the, the ghostly specter that's sort yeah. of haunting. I mean, because he looks almost exactly like him, which, you know, froze you off. And given the framing conversation, it's sort of, even when you see him alive, he feels like a memory. He feels like he's already gone. Yeah. He feels like he's already dead within the context of the film itself, not just like in the context of the real world. Like some movies kind of play with this tragedy of, you know, where the, we just talked about Judas and the Black Messiah. That's a movie where, you know, by the end of it, one of these characters is going to die and it plays with that the entire group. This isn't like that. This is like, as you say, on that black screen, the strings come in and you're like, he's already dead. <laughs> like he's already yeah. gone. He's gone. Yeah. The body's cold. And everybody wants their cut of it. One thing that I talked about earlier is that Jackie doesn't really know what people are thinking, which means that, of course, unlike us with the privilege of time, and uh, unless you kind of buy into conspiracy theories, we're all pretty sure Lee Harvey Oswald did it. I mean, Jackie doesn't know any of that, right? Yeah, no. There's like one line where she mentions that Jack had said something like, they're coming to get me, but it's unexplored. Like it's just mentioned in a bypassing moment of like a hint of the CIA and the FBI, you know, deciding to bump him off. And then you see there's that really famous photograph, which is recreated of Lyndon swearing on a plane. She's wearing the Chanel, which we've already talked about, is covered in fucking blood. Like she's covered in president as they're swearing in a new president. And it's it plays that moment from the perspective of Jackie, certainly. It doesn't really play it. It's not a Hanukkah movie. It's not like something that you're watching from yeah. the, the third person perspective. You're very much attuned to the fact that right. she's like, I mean, that's pretty suspicious to me. It's like it's clear. Feeling. She doesn't trust LBJ. She doesn't trust Lady Bird. There's no one other than a little bit Bobby, eventually the priest, and like maybe Billy Crudup's character by the very end, does she trust a a little bit? bit, A little bit. And again, that's kind of part of that interrogating the biopic thing where Lorraine would like you to understand that he knows some of this is speculative. He's not trying to tell you that it's definitive facts, trying to tell you a story. No. So there's that element of it, but because of the fact that we're talking about a story where a woman has to maintain a facade during the psychological turmoil, that there is this distance between the interior self and the exterior self. And that's what the entire film is. About. There's that conflict because she knows what her place in history can be. And the whole movie is about her making sure that her and more importantly, her husband have that spot on the history books. You know, she asks for the books about Lincoln's funeral and she wants to basically recreate it to ensure his spot. There's there's an interesting angle here that maybe isn't necessarily explored, but would be somewhat understood maybe by a Chilean filmmaker as Lorraine is or just somebody from a country other than America, which is that in terms of human civilization, we are a baby. We have not been here very long. We have 10 presidents that matter, matter in terms of the, the greater, broader history of the world. You take the UK, you take France. And it's just places where people have lived far longer than they have lived in what we consider to be the United States. Of course, some Native peoples that were here before that. That's a different film. <laughs> That's a different yeah. discussion. Yeah. In but, terms of like widespread history, the United States of America is still a very young concept. If we go back to 1776, the White House was not in Washington, D.C. And so what the Kennedys represent historically is like, and you, you can have your own feelings about this, as I think the film Spencer explores. They're like American royalty. They lend a degree of 
ethos to the presidency, as odd as that may sound. It would be like if Hearst had ever won the presidency or if Rockefeller had ever won the presidency, taking this sort of American monarch and then installing it into this office of the presidency, which is kind of this bootstrap, yeah, we're a democracy, (laughs) A, a, a position to which Donald Trump can be elected in the 21st century, right? Like it's a, and so, so much of when you learn about United States history in late 1700s and early 1800s, so much of what you're learning about are the events that framed the country because they were making the shit up as they went along. So how you handle yourself through an assassination speaks a lot. If Jackie acts in cowardice, who's to say Lady Bird doesn't get picked off someday in the future because it sends that level of a message. Because America, just as it is in the year 2021 in the 1960s, as turbulent as it's ever been, as malleable as it's ever been, brushing up with Cold War and and civil rights, you know, no one really knew what the country was going to be. And so to have this kind of resolute front and say, like, this matters this much is really, I wouldn't say that it's vital because it's like we would still be here as a country if she hadn't. But it was this inflection point. Our trajectory since that time has been defined by the fact that she specifically handles this one week in time the way that she did. And to connect back to the idea of, you know, the Kennedys as like the American royal family, there was a Kennedy in office somewhere in the United States for over a century. It wasn't until literally last year that one of the Kennedys decided to run for the seat of the Senate for the state of Massachusetts. And he lost because we all like Ed Mackey better. That's the first time a Kennedy has lost an election in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, there is this idea of the Kennedys as, you know, the ultimate political dynasty, the ultimate family, and connecting to that idea because that idea of old money and like older privilege does connect back to Europe, back New England in general has that vibe of European ideas and culture. And, you know, because, you know, the pilgrims came here in 1620 and stuff like that. So it's naturally older country became the country at a time when yeah it was still the united kingdom yeah it's older than dallas it's older than dc it connects back to something much much older notably at least to me is like when we make these kind of links to the lincoln assassination so obviously abraham lincoln was assassinated in no small part due to his role in the civil war the emancipation of the slaves and it was part of this like greater plot to assassinate actually like a whole bunch of people because the Confederate states felt like they wanted somebody that would be more sympathetic to them during Reconstruction. And so it's kind of fascinating that you would have a Texas-based assassination, which is something that the film very briefly gestures towards where she's talking about how they toured through the state, but it's a place only 100 years removed from the Civil War where this is a very left-leaning president for this time in America. Bobby, obviously, is like fucking (laughs) all the way over there, right? And so like his ideology of, you know, leaning uh, away from Vietnam, civil rights, that that type of thing. Like the the type of stuff that Lyndon B. Johnson would kind of make part of tenure as the president, all of which push up against the sensibilities of Texas and and of that stuff, which I think is pretty interesting. It's not like a huge, huge, huge part of this. Interesting to connect, especially in terms of the Kennedys, because Massachusetts actually used to be a reliably conservative state. And it wasn't really until the Kennedys took power that it flipped. And now it's been reliably blue ever since the movie itself is not super duper involved in the politics but i think that it's something where if you understand the parallels that it is making to abraham lincoln specifically that you can kind of read it in between the lines 
it touches on it a little bit, but the main focus is really more on Jackie and grief and, you know, finding your spot in history. It's not really about the political nitty gritty of, you know, what happened with the Bay of Pigs or the Civil Rights Act or. But I think that because it takes place during all of those things and because as an audience member, we know all of those things, what it's suggesting is that this individual experience is about as important as all that. You know, it's just as important what these human beings went through as all of these bigger, wider, greater political issues. The political machine marches on as we see what we're kind of treated to is like a human being figuring that out for herself, navigating through that moment. Um, and no one's better suited to the task than the control, which I think career best, maybe Black Swan. I think I, I'm a bigger fan of Spencer overall, just kind of vibe what it's doing more. They're two different performances. You know, Portman, there's like this layer we were talking about. You're in the inside of the White House and the rooms and the rooms and the rooms. And that's how the whole performance is. There's an emotion and there's layers and layers and layers of the outside of it. Sometimes you're looking at one layer. Sometimes you're looking at four and you can always about tell where she's at emotionally because she's got that degree of discipline and control to, to kind of tell you that. It's like there's a million doors and you're just opening a door and then there's another door and you got to open it to get to the emotion that she's containing. And Spencer, there's like one door and (laughs) And, and Diana blows it up and she just spills it all over the palace. With Jackie, we get the interview scenes where she really hits a whole kind of crazy range of emotions just sitting down and talking to Billy Crudup. We have, as we talked about, the assassination scene. Which, so you really just kind of get to see her, even though it's a compressed period of time, in all of these different little scenarios. Where, yeah, the, exploring different character dynamics. Yeah, it's like this is how she is when she's by herself late at night playing the Camelot soundtrack and uh-huh. mourning the death of her husband. Or this is how she is when she's talking to Linda B. Johnson's team about the funeral procession and basically saying, well, I don't give a fuck if Charles de Gaulle rides in an armored car. I'm walking. <laughs> That's such a great delivery. <laughs> I love that in Pablo Lorraine movies, there's just enough camp that you accept things like Jackie Kennedy going, or Natalie Portman in her fake Massachusetts accent going, you know, there was a Camelot. <laughs> like... <laughs> like like she literally says it on the nose but it works there's just kind yeah. of this i wouldn't call it a playfulness more so with spencer there's playfulness with the kfc and the needle drops and stuff i don't know how would you would you agree with that though that there's like yeah. a little bit of camp to it just like a i mean there's a little bit of camp but it makes sense because history is camp at a certain history point, is dramatic when you're doing a parade you got a bunch of dudes with weird facial hair and goofy freely uniforms with castles and yeah the whole office of the presidency and politics it's it is kind of a big facade there is a bit yeah you're right i i I like that take and i agree and you know that's kind of what camelot is not the musical but when you talk about like arthur and camelot it's about like political iconography and how important that is to people and how much it registers in the mind we're living in a year with a king right like we just (laughs) saw it it was good death patel hot it's very good, very hot. <laughs> but there is that inherent touch of camp because, you know, you got like magic witches and the sword in the lake and love and betrayal and people losing their heads. Like, And it's important to understand, you know, let's 
if you wind it all the way back, right? We talk like Greek mythology, the pettiness of the gods, this idea that everyone is human, everyone is kind of guided by emotion, which of course is what this is about. Um, yeah. as, as we've said, is that no matter what the political requisites of this situation are, no matter what other people expect of Jackie, no matter what she expects of herself, she is a human. She is a person, a wife, a widow, going through yeah. the most traumatic possible experience, really. It's the most horrible thing in the world to have to explain to your children who are both under the age of 10 why daddy can't come home. Uh, it's a crushing scene. Prior to that moment, there's just this thing where it's like, what am I going to tell my kids? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're like, they're like uh, I don't know. Good luck with that. <laughs> Slam the door, run away. Even that moment, even if you think about her conduct in that moment, so much of this movie is kind of like grace under fire. And she's so mannered when she explains that to her children, which is, I mean, it's crazy to me because like i just i i can't even think about the movie up without crying like <laughs> the idea that like you know this person is explaining this thing to these children yeah at, it's at just such like, a level. then she even has to bring in the children that she miscarried oh. you know she makes the comment saying that you know we wouldn't want them to be lonely so daddy had to be with them there's, and it's like how do you say that without completely breaking down there's an insert shot because they have those two premature death babies they have them interred, have them buried with their father. And there's this insert shot of the two graves and the two bitty, bitty caskets being lowered into it. And yeah. it's a striking bit of imagery, of course, because of how deeply sad it is. it is. There's a character in The Leftovers, whole bit of the character in The Leftovers is like the wife of a husband and three kids who all vanish, right? And how messed up that is. And you're just like, that's the image, right? Is your husband and yeah. kids. There's, if there's anything more traumatic to go through than your husband being shot in front of you and being coded in his brains, it might be losing not one, but two children. But I also think that there's a lot of symbolism in that shot because, of course, what do two little baby coffins make you think of if not potential wasted? I just use that word premature. And that kind of feels like Kennedy. Kennedy surely would have been a two-term president. And who the fuck knows what the 60s would have been like? Who knows what the rest of American history would have been like? And it just kind of poses that to you in a, in a brief image. I'm really, really glad you brought that up because it's one yeah. of the most evocative and striking images of the entire film. There's that whole air surrounding it of, well, what the fuck do we do now? And no one knows. Uh, I already made this point, but like this film came out in 2016, pretty pivotal election year. And, and it's just the truth of any given political era that you find yourself living in is that there are people and they are in rooms and they're asking, what the fuck do we do now? And in that way, it's a really incisive kind of portrait, even though as we talk about, it, it's not about politics, it's about yeah. the machinations of politics and the power structures of politics. You know, that fall 2016, and you know, riding home to my apartment dorm room on the metro and like the panic that was slowly setting in from car to car as the results were rolling in. Yeah. Oof. That was the year that I moved to Dallas. I, this is like one of the first films, like one of the first new releases that I saw in a theater in Dallas. And of course that election happened in Dallas. It was really like a memorable movie year for me because that was like when Moonlight came out, it was when Rival came out, it was when Silence came out. I saw them all in theaters and it was just like, I love living in the city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was also um, the first year I really got to experience a film festival. So I got to see The Handmaid and I got to see Elle. Oh, yeah. yeah. So like all this great stuff was coming out all at once. Where does this rank among your 2016 favorites? Extremely high. I mean, it's a super packed year. At least top five, I think. Yeah. 
it's really it's one of my favorite biopics and i think spencer is now up there with it yeah i mean i would call this the best american biopic of the last 10 years at least if not longer struggle i i can think of two that i like more one of which is spencer which you'll like and the other of which is may which you will not like <laughs> but what what i like what i will say what i'll make a little bit of a connection here is that what all three of those do that is significant to me and and jackie and mank particularly do this is that yeah. they are fragmentary psychological explorations that are really elusive and basically tell you fuck you i can't give you the answer uh, of course, Mank is taking after Citizen Kane, which, like, that is the point of Citizen Kane is that no matter how many pieces of the puzzle you have, you can never put a man together, right? Like, right. And and to me, like, that is like what Jackie gifted the biopic going forward is that if you find a way to explore that line between what we know as fact and what we can never really know as people, that's where you start getting into interesting biopics because you start to get into the meat of what a person really is. And, you know, Spencer takes it even one step further because they advertise the film straight up as a fable about what might have happened that weekend. And I think that Jackie is about a woman who is in this psychological state after this tragedy, creating a fable for the rest of the world. Yeah, she builds the myth of Camelot. And honestly, if you look at all of American history afterwards so far up to this point, it's the last myth that's really stuck around. I don't know you could talk to a couple of conservatives about reagan or whatever but like even that it's doesn't really last, stick anymore i think it's the last myth that is sort of a positive if not positive you know it has like optimism optimism that's a great word for it because i think that watergate is a little bit mythological at this point whenever there's a scandal it gets called gate but that's a yeah. very that's 70s pakula myth making right like that's paranoid everything is rotten and shitty yeah. And that's the type of myths that America traffics in predominantly in, in the latter half of the 20th century yeah. in the first two decades of this one. This was the last knight in shining armor, castles and kings and queens. Exactly. And now we're, now we're trying to navigate ourselves through, I don't know, the plague. <laughs> like, I, and, wait. I, the 10 plagues of Egypt. <laughs> oh, dear. Huh. Here we go. We talked about things that you've seen recently. Is there anything coming up that you haven't seen that you're excited to see? Um, I'm excited to go see Licorice Pizza once I decide to drag my ass over to the Regency. <laughs> Are you going to uh, see that in 35 and 70? How are you going to see that? I think it's playing in 70 at the Regency. So that's what I'll be seeing. Um, I'm also really excited to see Benedetta. Um, Verhoeven's up my alley all the it's, time. It's Verhoeven riffing on Ken Russell's The Devil's and Salt. it's hornier yeah right <laughs> that's all you needed to know <laughs> you know i thought of you when we were because you and i watched the devils earlier this year and yeah. there's just these scenes where you see because it's the same kind of story it's a little french provincial castle and you see the castle and the way that it's designed you're like mm, i love the production let's go it's great <laughs> and then he just unfurls his entire kinky id so yeah i imagine that'll be one that you'll at least be very entertained by. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be in my top 10 at least. Um, Cole, you want to tell them where they can find you? Um, so they can find me on Twitter. Um, my at is Los Angeles B-E-Y. Or you could find me on Letterboxd. Um, I think it's just my name on there. Um, you can see me on the page for House of Gucci if you want. Oh, how are you <laughs> handling the fame from your Letterboxd viral view? Are you the top oh, review of House of Gucci right now? Uh, it's in the top five right now. It's got like, uh, 
you know, it's so much, it's so funny because you can write a lot of great stuff. You know, you could write a whole essay and then you could write a joke and both of them could equally receive like over a thousand likes. So on my page, you're showing is the second most popular. Oh, okay. well, can we talk about Hasaguchi for a second, just for yes, like yeah, some fun? Yeah, go uh, ahead. <laughs> That's it's, I think that Ridley Scott made the two longest movies of all time this year. I don't I know. Congratulations. <laughs> and they're like, I saw some tweet that they were going to do extended versions of the Yeah, they are. Hasaguchi. I'm like, they're both so long. Come on, four hour cuts. <laughs> yeah, House of Gucci, um, the latest Ridley Scott uh, film from this year. As I was just saying, it's one of two films he's got this year, both of which feature Adam Driver. Uh, this one centers on, oh gosh, the, the Gucci family. Uh, it stars Lady Gaga. It stars Jared Leto doing a Wario impression. It stars <laughs> Al Pacino. Um, yeah, talk about uh, Jeremy Irons, Adam Driver. Yeah, yeah. Adam uh, Driver. Who looks so confused by everyone else in the entire movie. He's just doing a far more restrained performance. His accent is relatively normal. And meanwhile, <laughs> Gaga and Leto are chewing up all the scenery around him. He's like, oh my God, are they going to like eat the rest of the set? You know, in terms of movies that I did not care for, it's one of the most entertaining. I, it, I think that my experience with it really was like, I got 20 minutes in and was like, oh, I came to see the wrong thing. I just, I'm not the audience. This was not for me. I saw it in a packed house. Um, oh, yeah. Clearly, a lot of homosexuals here because of Gaga. Multiple people in the crowd were yelling out her lines from the trailer alongside her, which added to the experience. Everyone was laughing almost the entire time. The main thing that it could do to quickly knock itself into a better lane to be campier, to be funnier, to be like, it's loud and messy already because of Gaga and Leto mostly. But yeah. Like, just chuck it into the deep end of that experience, yeah. make something that that crowd that you're talking about doesn't laugh at, but just roars at for the entire time. And then, yeah. you, then you've got a film. All right. So we'll sign it off here. Uh, thanks, Cole. Really great conversation. Love you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I want to say thanks again to Cole for joining me for today's conversation. You can find Cole on Twitter at Los Angeles B E Y and on Letterboxd at C R Duffy 97. And thanks to you all for listening. If there are any films, directors, or topics you'd like to hear us cover on the show, drop me a line on Twitter at Bad Take Central. We hope to talk I'm with you again soon. I know it sounds a bit bizarre, but in Camelot. Camelot, that's how conditions are.